Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. Email us, should you wish. Our address is ogc at accessradio.biz, biz is spelt B-I-Z. And check out our Facebook page as well, which is Off Grid Christianity. Our guest today, sitting in front of a fantastic fire, and uh, that's why you hear the crackling in the background. Our guest today are a husband and wife who met in Canada. Aaron later planted and pastored a church for 10 years in Victoria, British Columbia. And in 2018, Aaron and Grace, plus their five children, moved to Kenya before returning with family to Northern Ireland in 2020, just in time for lockdown. (laughs) So what's it like to start a Bible college in Kenya? What are the pros and cons of homeschooling your children? How do you cope when three of your children have cystic fibrosis and also diabetes? And what's it like to live off-grid? And what is the Krupp Project? It gives me great pleasure to talk to the author of Johann Ludwig Krupp, his le- life and legacy, and that's Aaron Danlop and his wife Grace. Thank you guys for inviting us down here today, and thank you for a lovely, lovely lunch as well. So that always goes down well. But obviously before we get to those answers, five important questions to ask you guys. Are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> Good stuff, right. Okay, Grace, you can start first then. Question number one, if you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? Well, uh, for me, it would be a lady called Rachel Stewart Watt, who um, not many people have heard of, actually. Nope. I've been doing a wee bit of research on her because um, she is a lady who lived in the same part of Kenya we did okay. way back in the late 1800s. She was a missionary. So um, I've been learning about her, and she's a fascinating person. Brilliant. What kind of questions would you ask her? Oh, how, how did you survive a lifetime in Kenya <laughs> <laughs> um, under very difficult circumstances? Um, i just like to meet her, just to see. Yeah. And because she writes in Victorian language, you know, it's very highfalutin and very wordy, and I'd like to meet the real yeah. woman. You know, I think, I think Victorian era authors wrote about themselves and their stories in a, a very packaged kind of way and I'd love to meet the real woman and maybe see a little bit of her raw you know down-to-earth side. Did she like Kenya at all? I think she loved it um, but there were some real struggles yeah, yeah, yeah. you know but she was a um, very faithful wife and mother so. Her mm-hmm. husband actually um, they moved to Australia for health reasons and then he moved her back to the bush. The second time? The second mm-hmm. time. So they wow. had to give up a home a second time. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, she was quite a character. Great answer. No doubt we'll talk about Kenya later on then. Mm-hmm. And what was mm-hmm. the name again? Rachel Stewart Watt. Rachel Stewart Watt. Great stuff. Thank you, Rachel Grace. Aaron, who would you choose, sir? That's a very difficult question, and I've wrestled with it <laughs> for the past couple of weeks. There's a number of people, pioneers, but I think I have to settle on... Augustine. Oh, right. Uh, he's a North American, or sorry, <laughs> North African. <laughs> he was North African uh, church father uh-huh. uh, and theologian and writer and one of the most influential Christian writers in history. But I would like to meet him because he was a very deep thinker, extremely deep thinker and theolog- theological mind. But also because he was North African, he was African. I know he was north of the Sahara, and I'm dealing, I'm working in Sub-Saharan Africa. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that the African Christians should know that much of the theology that we enjoy today, the formulation of theology, happened in North Africa. The, the, the formation of universities, libraries, that all happened in North Africa. Yeah, isn't the, the oldest library in the world yeah. in Morocco or something like that? Yeah. Alexandria. Alexandria. Yeah, there's yeah, it was one in Alexandria, there's a toss-up between Alexandria and, and uh, Timbuktu. But yeah. Wow. So uh, the, the, the theology, the, the doctrine of the Trinity and, and the fundamental theology formulations that we enjoy today and know as basic, all were all formulated by, by North African Christians. And Augustine was... Plus his, his, his argument against Pelagius and the understanding of humanity, uh, the understanding of himself, mm. which is another very interesting slant on, on why I would like to meet him, because he was a man who understood himself. Pelagius, on the other hand, didn't understand himself because he, he didn't believe in original sin, uh, that, that we were, they were sinners in Adam. Uh, he sinned by his own free will. So he didn't really understand himself, so I don't really want to talk to someone who doesn't understand themselves. And which century are you talking about? Fifth century. Fifth century. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he was just a deep, deep thinker, and every line of Augustine's writings is like a thought bubble. And what language would he speak? In the Latin. Latin. Just as well. I would read it in English. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Having translated it from Latin. (laughs) Good answers. Thank you. Question two. Uh, We'll start again with you, Grace, if that's all right. Who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, please? I think this was a hard one. It would have to be Ruth. Ruth or Esther. But I'll settle on Ruth. Hard choice. No, it doesn't have to be a woman, but... (laughs) But I love Ruth. I love the story of Ruth. I think because she was a woman who went through a lot of change and transition. And, and she did that through faith. And then coming to a new country with her mother-in-law and caring for her mother-in-law was a very selfless act in a way. Mm. Um, but then also her, her, her trust then in that the Lord would provide and then the way the Lord did provide through Boaz. It's just a, it's a very... Um, comforting story it is and I, we've traveled about a bit so i can kind of uh relate to her having to move about so but you weren't bitter when you well, moved <laughs> i hope not maybe here and there was it no, myra ruth, i think the original. ruth was not bitter that's the thing i like about her she was very content and she made up her mind i'm going with you naomi i'm going to do what i need to do she was faithful in the small things and then the lord blessed her for it brilliant so. that's a great answer did a musical once back in my Bristol days and it was called Love Song in Harvest mm. and it was all about the story of Ruth so uh, yeah thank you for that question two for you then young Aaron uh, who's your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable please well the last question was difficult coming to, to land on Augustine but this one is easy Adam because I would like to discover what he was thinking when he ate the fruit in the garden mm-hmm and the whole of chapter 3 fascinates me, Genesis chapter 3, and the process of, he was not deceived, Paul tells us that he was not deceived. He went into his sinful rebellion against God with his eyes wide open. And I'd like to figure out what was going on in his mind, what he thought, 
to be like God meant in his mind. Yeah, yeah. But also the process that happened after that, when when a very pithy statement, the Lord says, or the scriptures uh, records, uh, they knew that they were naked. The consciousness of their nakedness before God, because they hid themselves in fig leaves, right? Mm-hmm. But the fig leaves couldn't cover them from God, so they hid themselves behind the trees in the garden. So they couldn't cover them from God either. God kept pursuing them. And so that, that whole process of consciousness of sin, the consciousness of his depravity before God in the fall before God, and then after that, what happened after and after the, God introduced the gospel in, in verse 15, he's going to crush the head of Satan. Mm-hmm. And the joy that he must have felt when, when the enemy of his soul was going to be crushed and the fact that he held on to that and he renamed his wife Eve, the mother of living. The whole story just uh, fascinates me. That, that just that process of the fall and redemption of Adam in chapter 3 because Adam does get saved at the end of the yeah, chapter. Yeah, yeah. So I, would just, I could spend an evening just roaming through that chapter with him. That's a great answer. I can't remember anyone ever choosing Adam before. And of course, Adam would speak perfect English for that. He would have well. to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff, thank you. Um, this will be interesting. Question three. Uh, if you were Prime Minister, or I'll let you be President of Canada as well, if you want more about that in a minute, no doubt. Uh, <clears throat> if you're Prime Minister or President for the day and could change any law or impose new law, what would it be? This time we'll go with Aaron, please. Well, this is easy. And... I listen to one of your programs and you and you ask one of your guests and before they answered I had an answer already in my mind the same answer all right oh, this would be interesting and I thought that in the split second between the question and the answer I'm thinking it has to be it has to be uh, realistic something that can last or but maybe that's not in, in the question maybe. or maybe you want something fantastical I don't know no I like silly answers as well <laughs> I would change the abortion law I think abortion is a travesty on our nation and the death and the murder of infants, um, the selfishness that precipitates that whole the whole law and the agenda. I think it's horrendous. Yeah. Well, can I just say you're not the first person right. to have chosen that subject. It seems to be the the number one by then some yeah. on that one. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. And for you, Grace. Um, are you going to be, by the way, by the way are you going to be Prime Minister of the UK or are you going to be President of Canada? Or uh, Prime, Prime Minister, Minister of Canada, Canada I suppose. Sorry, yes. yes. Well, this is interesting, saying as the Prime Minister of Canada is trying to bring in laws that promote euthanasia for mm-hmm. um, very, ex- um, very, not for extreme situations, for everyday situations, mental All health. Right. Young people walking in to the doctor clinic saying, I need help. And, you know, the, um, the extension of the... Uh, logic is that they will be offering this kind of option. Really? Yeah. So it's 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 getting there, and it's posing big problems for doctors. I have a I have a brother in Toronto who's a doctor, and right. it's a huge problem for doctors because they are legally required to refer patients if they want this kind of access. So yes. it's a big problem for Christians, but just in general, just that culture of of treating life as less than precious. You know, it's just very grieving. Yeah. So I would definitely halt all of that <laughs> good answer thank you thank you question four outside of family events what has been your most enjoyable day out Aaron I've wrestled with this one too I've been <laughs> a lot of places and seen a lot of things but the most enjoyable day out slash two days or three days is a visit to Cora 
Mkura National Park, just about 60 miles northeast of where we lived in Kenya. You've heard of George Adamson? Yes, Joy and Joy uh, and, and George. George Adamson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's Kora was where he, and then it was taken over for a short while by um, Tony Fitzjohn, oh, who right. just died last year, unfortunately, of cancer. Born so, free, of course. Is born free, the, right? The film, yeah. But that's that's <laughs> just a, a little fenced compound yeah. in the middle of nowhere, hundred miles from the closest town between Wingi and Gorissa. And it was just a little paradise where you could just go and write. Not peopley at all. So no interruptions. You have your 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 Ascari, your your guard, who also doubles as your cook, and you're just sleeping outdoors. It's just wow. idyllic. Yeah. Wow. What does the guard do then? Well, you need a guard there and Ascari who would it's a it's a gated compound, so you would need a guard. George Adamson was killed by bandits. Oh, yes. So, yeah. So you would need a guard in that area. Right. Yeah. You're close. Well, you're not so close to the Somali borders, border, but I think it was, I believe it was bandits who killed him. Yeah. But just staying outside in the yes. compound. With, yeah. With your guard. Yeah. Having a nice meal. Having a nice meal with a friend. It was a friend of mine who is uh, looking after part of the compound yeah. or is involved in looking after it. Obviously, thinking of your wife and children back home at the time. Obviously, yes. going goes climbing, saying. climbing up the mountain to the rocks where he trained the lions to get. A yeah, signal. I could get a signal up there and call Grace and make sure she was okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was about a two or three day visit, or wow. one night. Maybe it was just one night. Yeah. Wow, yeah. sounds brilliant. Must admit, sounds brilliant. Grace, what about yourself? Oh, that's tough because I'm pretty much always with my family. <laughs> <laughs> you could say when your husband left you so you could have peace and quiet for oh. three days whilst he was out with the lions. I, I was going to say a day on the beach in Donegal, um, but I was with I was with family, so... <laughs> well, I'll let you have that. But yeah, I love the beach, so any any chance I would get uh, just a day on the beach with yeah. me, me and a book Ooh. at the beach, that would be my favourite day out. Brilliant. In warm, warmish weather. <laughs> yes. No windbreaker. Yeah. No windbreaker, and you don't. A have... wild beach. That's why I like Donegal because it's wild. It's not. Yeah. It's not as, you know, touristy and there's no shops and there's just lots of wild grass and cheap. And beautiful beaches, beautiful blue seas. Oh, it's just so beautiful. Up there. Just slightly colder. Yes. <laughs> yes. Mm, that's why I'm saying a bit of windbreaker. <laughs> I was we, thinking we of getting actually, water. We were there this time last year, and we actually got some warm. Warm beach days, kids were in shorts. Wow, that's great. It's just the sea, a bit colder for me, that's all. But yes, it is lovely. Um, not that I'm promoting as part of the tourist board for Donegal, but <laughs> <laughs> it is breathtaking over there. It's, nice. mm -hmm. it's really good. Uh, question five. What has been your most embarrassing moment? Let's go with uh, Aaron again, Shree, first of all. Build it well, up. Build I'm not going to tell you my most embarrassing, which was a language <laughs> issue in France. My most embarrassing moment, I think outside of that one, or next to that one, was as a student, there was a couple of, event, of events actually that happened a couple of times. Um, as a student, I was leading the singing in church. I was preaching in a particular congregation. It was a small church, and I was leading the singing. And between the verse and the chorus, I encouraged the people to, to sing. Let's hear you sing. And in that little pause between the verse and the chorus, I shouted out, let's hear you sing. And the pianist was just down below me <laughs> and I frightened her and she stopped <laughs> and everybody stopped. So it was just, uh, 
Very embarrassing. The other event, which was also uh, in a church and involved singing, was I think it was, it must have been my first communion. I was conducting a communion service mm-hmm. for the first time. And it was common. It's a communion time when you're in devotional time and you're meditating as the elements are passed around. And it was common in our church for a member of the congregation or the pastor to start up a verse of a, of a song, a hymn. Mm-hmm. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me. And I was in a different church, and as I'm, I was leading the communion service, and I thought I'll, I'll sing this song, and nobody knew it. I sang the first verse solo, <laughs> and gave up. <laughs> so there are two embarrassing moments for the for the more embarrassing one. But you sing so good, they all stood up and applauded. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully those who were there have forgotten it. <laughs> if you were one of those people, please let us know. <laughs> That'd be great. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, and for yourself, uh, Grace, what has been your most embarrassing moment to date, please? Well, I, I think one of them anyway was uh, when I was a young mother with a young child, young toddler who was learning to be potty trained. And I had thought, you know, thought he had been fairly well potty trained. We were invited up to a cottage <clears throat> on Vancouver Island some friends of ours were on the island for a few days and said, come on up for the day. So we went up and this particular family, very posh, very British and very proper. And it was a lovely, beautiful cottage. And my young child at the time, I won't name any names, but he, um, <clears throat> he was up in the loft. It's narrowing it. The fact you said he. <laughs> oh, oh dear. <laughs> Didn't mean to do that. He was up in the loft playing away and all of a sudden... The other children of the other family let out a horrified yell, and my son had just, you know, used the facilities right there on the carpet. (laughs) What they call in Africa, a long call. Yeah. Oh, I was mortified. So that was, yeah, that was not fun. (laughs) And your son's listening. You haven't mentioned his name, so he's... uh... He's got mm-hmm. a, he's slightly okay on that one. This is the, <laughs> thank the, you. Those were the days when I was a young mother and I probably cared too much about my reputation. <laughs> so it's just so embarrassing. I'm sure many a parent can uh, lay claim to that similar story. Mm-hmm. Listen, that's, that's great. Thanks for that. And obviously, it's only fair just to place it a bit further uh, as far as you two are concerned. You haven't got a Northern Ireland accent. Please tell us more where your accent's from and how you met your hubby, please. Um, so I grew up in Canada, so it's a Canadian accent, um, although I was born, funny enough, in Balamani. I was oh. born in Balamani, and uh, mom and dad are from Oma, so uh, our roots are here. Um, but when I was one, we moved out to Vancouver. My dad planted a church in Vancouver. Yeah, I grew up, I, I came back and forth a few times, but I, you know, basically see myself as Canadian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You haven't got a Northern Ireland accent. No, I, I thought I would pick it up, but I think sometimes I, get, I hear myself... When, with the lilt when we visited she had very often we'd come over for three or four weeks or more and she had a pseudo Canadian yeah when I was younger it was yeah. terrible it was terrible it's, it's when you sort of end up a sentence saying you boy yeah yeah something like that yes or rubbish you hear yourself saying rubbish and you're like what what am I saying because it'd be trash back there yeah, yeah garbage so see, yeah you're becoming more you more well I find the children use all the words now Yes. Yeah, they they haven't got the accent so much, but they use the words because their friends use the words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, so. our son's been over here for nearly 20 years. He came over when uh, mm. it was uh, about four or five. Mm-hmm. 
and he's still got his uh, English accent. Oh, wow. He's, mm. <laughs> but yeah. he, he throws in all the colloquialisms, uh, you know. Yes, like. yes. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So how did you meet Hubby then? Um, Aaron came out to Vancouver to study and ended up coming to our church and um, ended up preaching at our church. And then my dad had him stay at the house uh, What over the summertime. Offered, my mom and dad offered him to stay, stay at our house. I was away for the summer and I came back. He, he, he had moved in. So I saw a lot. I saw, I saw a lot of him then that fall. So that's how we met. Autumn, please. Autumn, <laughs> Thank yes. You. Yeah. And that's how you met? Yeah. Oh, well. wow. Her mum asked me to marry her, and so I married her. Oh, <laughs> that's lovely. I've also mentioned as well, and we've, you've mentioned the word Kenya a couple of times in previous answers, Aaron. So there's obviously a love affair for, for Kenya. Where did Kenya first come to be in your life? I first visited Kenya in 95, 1995. My father and I went out for three weeks. We were visiting pastors in Nairobi, and then we, we went across to Ugandan border, just visiting churches. That was the first time. And then i obviously gone to Canada and planted a church then in Canada. And in 2016, I was invited back to the same area, actually, the Mungi County, Katui County, Mungi District, to do a seminar. And I went back again in 2017. So that was a reintroduction. My father had gone out then when I went off to Canada my father went out to Kenya uh, he had left the ministry and gone to Kenya to, to start a mission what did he do when you say he was in the ministry he was a, he was a pastor here in, in Ireland and so he'd gone to Kenya and so then I was invited out to to do a seminar wow. so that was a, that was the reintroduction if you like yeah, yeah to yeah. the work in Kenya yeah yeah and I mentioned also you, you started a, a Bible college in Kenya. I would, that was my plan to go out. I'd been out 2016, 2017 to do a seminar with the organization, FAME. So I felt, I felt called to, to help the pastors in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And so we, we all went, my family went in 2018 to help start a small Bible college associated with that organization. Got you. When you say fame, just to clarify that, we're not talking about Irene Cara fame no. and the Fame Academy. We're talking about another no. fame. What fame is that? F Friends of Africa Missionary Endeavour. Ah. Small missionary organisation here from Northern Ireland, but working yeah, in that yeah. particular area of Kenya. Yeah. 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 So you, you took your family to Kenya to, to help out there. How many children do you have at the time when you went over there then, Grace? Um, we had five. Mm -hmm. So what was it like being a mother, having had all the enjoyment of Canada, and the health service and things like that, to then pack your bags, knowing that's what God was calling you to do, mm -hmm. to go to Kenya. What was it like? Um, it was hard, um, to be fair. Um, it was it was good. It was interesting, and it was definitely a step of faith. I should maybe answer this partly because the Lord called. Sorry, to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the Lord. I felt the Lord calling me to work in Kenya. Yeah, yeah. But and we married when we first got married. Our plans were to go to West Africa. That's why I had gone to Vancouver to do linguistics. So when we got married in 2002... 2003. 2003, sorry. <gasps> Can you <laughs> just hear that? I'll have to do a cut there. <laughs> <laughs> 2003, we had got married to, to be missionaries. That was the plan. But then things changed and I planted a church in Victoria. So then the children came along with health issues, cystic fibrosis and, and yeah. type 1 diabetes. So it was a major issue, 
and it was really wiped off the board the possibility of going full time to Kenya so I had left it with the Lord and this is why I want to interject and answer this for her I had left it with the Lord to speak to her and I wouldn't speak about it again and one night I remember her sitting lying or sitting up in the bed and we had moved to Toronto by that time and she said I'm not willing to go but I'm willing to be made willing Brilliant. and that was her words and from that the Lord began to work on her and see her sure that the kids could survive in the bush. Well, this, I'll tell you what, that was a good interjection, I have to say. Yeah. We've heard the sigh from Aaron. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it from your point of view then, Grace. Um, yeah, well, I, I just I just had felt the Lord working in me to to let go of, of that, my sense of control over the children's health. You know, we did have good health care. We had all the medicine, yeah. medication we needed. So, um, and the kids, you know, had had been quite healthy. Um, so when we talked to the doctors, they said, yeah, you know, this could be possible. I, I had walked in trembling into the doctor's office thinking mm. that they would be very upset with us and say, no, you can't do this. You, you yeah. should not do this. But the Lord just from, you know, from the minute I finally said, okay, let's look into this at least let's think about this. You know, the Lord just paved the way from the beginning and I just had to keep walking, you know, and I didn't know, we didn't know if the doors would close, we didn't know if there would become a point where we could say, well, we've tried, it's not yeah. going to work. We're just going to stay in Canada. You know, we, we did have that sense that this was the Lord. And if, if he wanted it to happen, it would happen. You know, even, even throughout that period of preparation, the doctors were helping us. They, they the pathologists put us in touch with the patho- uh, people in Kenya. We got the lab set up the right way. Like there was a lot of groundwork that had to be done but we were able to do it. And like, I am not a go-getter. So this was big, this was big for me to, you know, be, to be discussing these things with hospitals and, you know, putting this person in touch with this person and getting it all set up, but it, but it worked. And um, the, I have to say the doctors were amazing. They were very good. They were very positive. You know, had the kids not been well at the time or something, you know, there was just, there was a lot of factors that could have prevented yeah, us yeah. going. But it was just the right time, and the Lord paved the way, you know. And, and within that, I kept meeting people. It, like it never had happened to me before, but I kept meeting people and say, "Oh, oh, I've been to Kenya. I, I, I go out to Kenya once a year and do surgeries. And there's everything modern you might need in Nairobi. There's everything medical you could need. You know, you'll have a great time. You'll enjoy." It. And it just those encounters put me at ease, and, you know. And the Lord knows, you know, and the Lord knows how to prepare us yeah, for yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then, when we arrived. You know, that was the first task was just to get the healthcare set up, make sure we knew where our medications could get delivered to the compound. And, you know, and then we lived on a compound with medical staff. So that was a comfort. You know, the kids could be hooked up to an IV if, if necessary. So that was important. You know, it, it never actually happened. The Lord was so good. We never had any major disasters in yeah. terms of, of diabetes. Uh, Thomas did get sick at one point and ended up in hospital for quite a few weeks. But... Um, you know, the Lord just continued to provide, and, and I learned I had to walk the walk of faith one day at a time, and then your confidence grows, you know, as the Christian life, you know, you mature and your confidence grows. Well, over, the, over those two year, years, you know, the Lord kept showing me how he could provide, and it wasn't that, you know, miracles happened and, you know, the children never got sick or we never ran out of medication and had to drive four hours into Nairobi or anything. But it's just that we had what we needed when yeah, the time yeah. came. We had the doctors. We found a doctor who had been trained in South Africa. And he was actually in touch with three different doctors in Europe and Israel. 
CF doctors. So he was a special, he knew his stuff, you know, and that just put me at ease. Whereas I had been told, you know, by different people in Canada, nobody knows about CF in Kenya. You know, there's no way you can live out there. You know, we had been, you know, I hadn't been told that by doctors, but I had been told that by um, certain people. And there was a little, a little bit of pushback. Yes. yes. Which was tough, but we just, I just knew it wasn't me. I knew it wasn't me coming up with this crazy idea. And I just, I had to submit to it, so. Wow, well, thank you for that. CF, cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think most people would have heard of that, but don't actually know what it is. Mm-hmm. So please tell us more about what CF is, please. Uh, well, it's a genetic disease, um, which um, is from birth. It's a cellular, what's the word? Malfunction. Autoimmune disease. No, diabetes is the autoimmune. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's a, it's a mutation, that's what I'm looking for. Mutation of the gene which means that um, the cells don't open properly. There's like, like there's a cell door on every cell, and it doesn't open properly to allow salt in. Therefore, water doesn't follow. Therefore, the mucus that is in every cell of your body uh-huh. is sticky. It's not fluid enough. So this is a huge problem for every organ of the body, not just the lungs. A lot of people don't realize that. It affects every can affect every organ. But it, it shows up mostly in the lungs because of the severity of that. It, well, it can differ among patients, but it just means that the, the lungs of a CF patient trap a bacteria that you probably have never heard of, you know? So, and it's bacteria that lives on your skin. It's bacteria that lives in water, in the air, in soil. Like you can't really get away from it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't avoid it. There, there's some you can do your best to avoid, but so a lot of times by twenties, thirties, forties, a patient can be really struggling. A lot of lung damage can happen. Hardening of the lungs, they call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's just prevention. It's all prevention. Um, you know, from day one, we were doing physiotherapy and things like that. And, of course, they take different medications. Yeah, yeah. I think most people listening today would say, well, if we felt called by God to go to Africa, name a country in Africa, and then all of a sudden you look at your five children, of which three have got uh, CF, most people would say, no, I can't, be, I can't go now. <clears throat> I've got to put my kids first. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many people came out of the woodwork and said to you, I don't think you should be going? Yeah, we had a number of people, close close people to us, actually. And they, they cared, you know, so I understand. Yeah. They were concerned, um, thought we were crazy. <laughs> which, which actually, it's hurtful. And it was hurtful for Grace, especially. But it, it has a way of making you think through Mm-hmm. Ironically, it it it, it um, emboldens you in what you're doing. Yeah, if you feel it's of the Lord, and this is what I learned at the time that faith, we talk about a blind faith, but faith is actually eye opening. It opens your eyes to what is possible with the Lord. Mm-hmm. This is what this is what we learned at the time. This is what Abraham that they they had given they had been given the promises, having seen them afar off. Not having received them, the, the author of the Hebrews says, yeah, yeah. but having seen them afar off. So faith is actually eye-opening. And this is something we work through. The Lord the Lord was opening our eyes to see what what he could do. And with the pushback that Grace got, particularly it was particularly uh, poignant for Grace, it, it, it emboldened her in it, I think, and strengthened her in it. Well, I think it confirmed to me this wasn't my own idea because normally I crumble at criticism. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know... I, I wasn't doing this for my own glory or for my own 
good looks. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a um, a project that I was taking on for affirmation because I was not getting much affirmation. No. You know, so um, that that confirmed to me this is the Lord asking me to do this. And uh, you know, there were times where I thought, well, it doesn't really make sense. Why us? You know, why? There's loads of families out there without any health issues. They could go. You yeah, know? yeah. But you know, I've learned the Lord loves to work through weakness, and you know, we just just had to trust him, you know, that, that that's all there was to it. Yeah. What you're doing is pragmatism, really, isn't it? you're trying to work it all the way through just to make sure it, it's okay. From your point of view, obviously, you, you had to go, but what pitfalls were you experiencing at the time about going over there, if any? There were none because I had been unsettled in the pastorate uh, in Victoria and I'd left Victoria. And we had gone to Toronto by faith that the Lord would open a door. Mm-hmm. So I had gone from the pastorate in, in Victoria to Toronto uh, w- w- into secular employment. So Africa was an opening of the door into into the Lord's work again, which I had looked to the Lord for. And that's what I had asked the Lord before I'd left Victoria. Yeah, so yeah, to yeah. me it was opening. And for, for me to leave it with the Lord then... And not and and for the Lord to work on grace was a, was an act of faith. You know, I was just waiting my time until the Lord worked on on her heart. To well, and you were almost called to a Baptist church. At that time, there was I was candidating for a Baptist church actually, and yeah. interviewed also in Canada, in Canada, mm-hmm. yeah, in Ontario. So that there was that's 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 a good point. That you ten- had to say so, no to that. So that tension then came in. Was it Africa or the yeah. pastorate yeah. in in Ontario? And, and I desperately wanted to put roots yeah. down. I it had yeah. it hurt so much to have to move, and leave behind Vancouver Island, and I uh, with all my heart I wanted roots and I wanted security and I wanted that forever home where your kids grow up and then they come back and they visit, you know, with their children and say, well, this is my bedroom, this is where I was yeah. born, and you know that's what I that I'm so, I'm very idealistic that way, and the Lord really worked on me and asked me to give all that up and. Plus, the church that we were candidating for, we became very close mm-hmm. to the congregation mm-hmm. and a particular family in particular. It was difficult to say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what swung it? Also. Well, no, it, it was difficult in the sense that here was a people who wanted us and I enjoyed I was preaching a lot for them. Yeah. yeah. I think we were just But But I was, I was convinced in my mind that it was Africa. You know, I'd been out. I'd been out to do the seminars and I'd seen the need and I really enjoyed the work. I like teaching. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd been in the pastorate and I wanted to go into teaching. Yeah, yeah. So Africa was the, uh, the I, teaching I, minister. Yeah. I think you were coming to the point where you were ready to pursue the Baptist Church in Canada because you didn't think I'd ever come on board. Yeah, that was probably right. But I had, I had been very convicted and become more and more unsettled that I needed to... At least tell him, well, you can do what you feel the Lord wants you to do, and I'll fall in. Because I had been holding on. <laughs> this is like confession. You know, it's I, good, isn't it? <laughs> I had been holding on so tight, and, and I and for weeks I, I thought, I'm not going to mention what I'm feeling to him. I'm not going to mention my thoughts. I thought, they'll just go away. Because I wanted that stable, secure church pastor position again with all yeah, my heart. Yeah, That's yeah. what I wanted. But I knew in my heart, if I, if I push this, and if I push him into this, situation and he's not 100% where he ought to be well I'll just regret it later and you know I just I wanted to be in the center of the Lord's will so 
even though I knew there'd be challenges. Yeah, yeah. You know? I, I think it was my wife. I'll give her the name check on this one. We took some of the early days, like one of the, the good thing about a husband and wife team is that especially if the husband is trying to do God's will, uh, he might get the, the vision, but it's up to the wife then to say, yeah, okay, what about the visas? What about this? What about that? You've got your vision, but, you know, is this uh, the whole mm-hmm. thing coming together. Mm-hmm. So She's the hurdles, and if you can get over the hurdles, you've got the vision. <laughs> <laughs> it's complimentary. Yeah. 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 It's complimentary. It works well. It works together if we let it work together. Mm-hmm. You know, I was never going to go to Africa and drag her there. You know, mm-hmm. that wasn't the option. It wasn't an option. But it works together, as, and the Lord melts it together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you're obviously not in Kenya now, because I can vouch it's a bit cold outside, right. so I've got a feeling we're not in Kenya. You started a Bible college over there. What brought you to Northern Ireland? The mission that we were with when I had gone out, when, I, when we had gone out in 2018, the mission was struggling in, 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 within itself and uh, with personnel. So when I arrived in November or in February 2018, other members of staff had already left mm-hmm. the field and come back home. And so we were left to run, we were running the compound. There were other members uh, had left also. So we had picking up pieces and running a compound and we had a staff of 48 or 49 on payroll. We had an orphanage, a baby rescue unit, vocational training for boys and girls, sewing machines and sewing and woodwork. We had a clinic, a clinic on the compound and a remote clinic. And all of this was ongoing. I was trying to establish the Bible college in the background and teaching, you know, when I could. And so I came to the conclusion that my calling was not being fulfilled. I was running a compound, a humanitarian compound. Well, your days were filled with administration. Yeah, it was just, yeah, that's right. It was Which which is important, but it's just not your it's calling. Not, it's not, it's certainly not my gift. <laughs> it's certainly not my gift. It wasn't my desire. I wanted to be teaching. I wanted to be working with the pastors. Yeah. So we came home in 2020, in February 2020, and um, we set up another project where I could work from Ireland. And we came back here because I had connections here, obviously, but it's closer to to Kenya. To fly from either Toronto or Victoria, you have eight hours difference. True. Ten hours if you're counting to Kenya. Yeah, yeah. So it's a long, it's a huge time difference, not to mention the flight times. Yeah. You know, and, and it's hard on the body that if you're traveling back and yeah, forth. Yeah. So I came, we came here, we connected here, and I, my intention is, and I do travel back and forward then to do my work in Kenya. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed, but over the fantastic lunch you provided, I was asking all your, your children, kids, whatever the terminology is these days, to get down with them. You know, if, if they could go back to Canada or Kenya or stay in Northern Ireland, where would they like to live? And Kenya was being flown at the top of the flagpole. It was it was great to hear. Mm-hmm. So they obviously enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But also there must have been, uh, and this is what uh, I'm, I'm leading to now, I, I said at the beginning there's often disillusionment uh, in Christians today mm-hmm. for whatever reason mm-hmm. I'm assuming I'm guessing here that you might have been disillusioned at times having gone from Canada straight into a completely different country what does the disillusionment mean to you guys from you know your Kenyan trips amongst other things well what comes to mind when you ask that question what comes to mind in my experience is what's called reverse culture shock mm-hmm. I'd 
I'd gone. I spent a year in Jamaica in 1999 to 2000. Uh, I pastored a small church there. Oh wow! So when I came back from from Jamaica, and and saw again the materialism here, compared to the poverty in Jamaica, there was a reverse culture shock. You know, when you go to yeah, yeah, a particular yeah. culture, uh, and you miss the the materialism, we call that culture shock. But when you come back to your own culture and you're critical of it. And I became very cynical and critical of, of people in Northern Ireland and people in the West and their materialism and very critical. And I remember one person in particular uh, rebuked me severely. And I took it and it was, it was, it was proper rebuke because it's a different economy. It's a different uh, life. Mm. And so there was no, I'd been, for me anyhow, I'd been used to traveling to interacting with different cultures and different economies. So to me, there was no real, you know, difference or difficulty in slipping into Kenya in the bush or living in North America, you know, and hotel visits and, you know, the, the travel life and it's a very nice life. We had a very nice life in Canada. So, you know, I'm, I'm adaptable that way, I think. Well, I think, I think for us, we'd moved from one denomination to another we'd we'd left our the church that we'd planted left that and had to find a new church in Ontario Mm -hmm. and then left that again to go to the bush to no church and then since since then we've left Kenya and had to find a church and a community here but I I think I think the I think rather than delusionment it's been a blessing and and we've always tried to put it in that light to our children because everywhere we've been we've been able to find God's people you know we found a, a a lovely group of people in our church in Toronto, in in different scenarios actually, because Aaron had been preaching elsewhere, and then when we went to Nairobi, or Kenya, yes, we we missed we missed church fellowship very much, and we felt that deeply. But then we were able to find once a month usually we'd be able to get to Nairobi, found a church in Nairobi, and then there was Christian fellowship on the compound as well with with the employees. Yeah, yeah. And then Aaron was preaching every Sunday in a different church and little rural places and often the older kids would go with you I couldn't always go because I had a toddler but they you know they'd be every every week a, a different mud hut church but doing the same things praising the Lord praying together hearing the word and and I think that has allowed them to flourish it's nice to have consistency like it is nice what now that we're here and have consistency but I, I think I think overall the moving about has been positive because we've found fellowship and we found help in the mer- that in were the willing mercy to help God, us in Nairobi in the mercy of God because there is that loneliness for lack of fellowship mm-hmm. and and I think I hope the kids now appreciate fellowship mm-hmm. the grace especially felt the lack mm-hmm. of fellowship in mm-hmm. in Kenya I was busy preaching here and there but grace had no real church fellowship and that was difficult. Yeah, yeah. And we and some I, I didn't notice it. Grace, I think, noticed it more maybe there. I didn't notice it until we come back here and plugged into a church mm-hmm. and you realise what you're missing mm-hmm. by by the lack of fellowship and no church. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge I was a shock actually yeah, to, yeah. to me to realise mm-hmm. what we've been missing here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate the fellowship yeah. of the Lord's people and the attendance at the church. Mm-hmm. But you take you grow up in it and you take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a whole new subject, just taking things for granted. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, right. Mm-hmm. got a lovely wooden fire here going at the moment. We've got electricity all mm-hmm. around us mm-hmm. that can use. 
go to the bush maybe not yeah. the same environment yeah. mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. oh, because we've got a husband and wife team here today i'm gonna to ask the same question but i'd like you to be honest but obviously from a male perspective and a female perspective you mentioned about uh, cf and the cystic fibrosis and what that actually is and what that means the fact you've got two children with with cf as a bloke what does that mean to you That's a difficult question. I, at the beginning, I didn't know what CF was. When the, when the nurse came, or the doctor called us and wanted both of us to come in to, the, to her office, remember, mm-hmm. and be, to speak to her, we knew there was something up. The, the, the heel prick test had been done at birth. So we knew there was something. But I sat there and listened to her, and I didn't know what CF was. Grace, I think, broke down there and then. I knew, knew a family with two girls. That's right. yeah. and we, I later got to know them. So it, there was a laissez-faire attitude on my part. Mm. Um, and then I realised, and I, and I realised what was entailed in the, in the sickness and the disease. But I'm very thankful now, even in the years since we, since our children were diagnosed, in those just few short years, the research and development in the medical perfect profession that has advanced tremendously uh, is phenomenal phenomenal and so you know I I taught the children right from the right from the get-go that this is a serious disease uh, we're facing death every day them more so mm-hmm. because of the disease and so I taught them up front the seriousness of the di- disease the reality of death and the seriousness of on the need then for preparing for death and I think, this is maybe not from my perspective, but from a father's perspective, it has, it has brought the kids together, I think, and they help each other, they pray for each other, they're aware of the difficulties. There was, and I don't want to get controversial, um, <laughs> but in the church that I was pastoring at the time when mm-hmm. Emily was diagnosed, um, there was an element within the church who wanted me to pray for healing. Mm-hmm. And I, it wasn't on my radar at all, at all. And I preached that Sunday, the following Sunday. If I had to do it again now, I would take a few weeks off. <laughs> and I would advise a young pastor to do that. But So why? why? Just to process it. Yeah. Yeah. But I was in the mill. Uh, I was planting a church. It was my baby. I was, you know, I felt it was, it, it was on my shoulders. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's, just, it's the Lord's church, right? It's going to sink or swim by the Lord, not by me, right? So there's the first element. But I preached that Sunday, I think it's Psalm 65, by by awful things, the Lord... Great think, and terrible. By, by great and awful things, the Lord does terrible things, something like this. Answers us. Answers us. And the meaning of the text, essentially, is that the Lord answers our prayers by doing things that cause us to stand in awe of him mm-hmm. right and i processed this and i and i processed it in three main points that morning preaching about this new diagnosis that the lord had given us that the lord the lord does terrible things the lord does terrible things things that cause us to stand in awe mm-hmm. he does them in answer to our prayers he answers us we pray for sanctification the Lord uses a lot of methods to sanctify us. 
right? And some harsh methods mm -hmm. and hard for us to take, but they're processing and character building and faith building. And he does them so that we stand in awe of him, right? So this is the Lord's doing. And the same word is used in that text that's used in the other verse. I don't want to misquote the, the citation, but we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm -hmm. We're made in a way that causes us to stand in awe. And that's another thing we've learned, the, the awesomeness of God in creation. And I made the point that Emily or Thomas or any child born with a, a physical disease, a, a disease or a physical ailment is made in the image of God. But they were sewn together in the womb by God. Right. And so we think we think, you know, oh, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We think, well, that's only that only applies to somebody whose heart beats like a Swiss watch yeah. or has a physical st structure and stature of Michelangelo's David, you know, so these great uh, physical abilities. But it's not, it's, a, it's, the, it's the child born with cystic fibrosis or cerebral palsy or Down syndrome. The Lord has knit them together in the womb. That's his work. That child is fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah. Just the same as that quote-unquote perfect child. Yeah. So that I've processed that and I, I learned that through that process you know that's a great answer that yeah. really is because i'm sure there are people listening today who would say well, if i was in that boat or maybe they are in you know a similar boat they just want to go and blame god yeah no no i believe in the absolute sovereignty of god not just as the god of creation who holds the stars and the sun and moon and yeah. face but the god who knows every detail who yeah. not only knows it but he has ordained it yeah for his glory so every detail of humanity has been ordained by god and he's he's a god who is loving he is a god who is all-knowing he's omniscient he's a god who is all-powerful yeah and so i my theology then dictated my life yeah right and how i how i processed it and acted it out yeah and so i had to wrestle through that because there were people in my congregation who were kicking back at, and wanting to pray for for healing and i felt i felt personally that it would have been wrong for me to pray for healing because of that yeah that never even entered my mind you know. do you know i know that um there's a big thing you mentioned abortion in one of your questions anti-abortion and that for down syndrome a couple of years ago over here there was a famous actress and other mothers you know who've got down syndrome children and saying no 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 you can't do this look you know they are wonderful kids we love them you know we wouldn't have them now sort of thing and so to, you know, to see them that they're knitting the womb, that's a, that's a great answer. Thank you. And that's from a, from a man's perspective to work that logic through. A logical perspective. But it's good though. Saying? No, I'm saying it's good because you know you need time out to think things <laughs> right. through, to process yeah. through. So you logically were able to come to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it being me, I'd most probably go and blame God straight away. I then go go away and think about it and realise that maybe I shouldn't be blaming him after all and he's got bigger yeah. shoulders than me. But from your point of view, Grace, from a, a from the female perspective, the fact you've had not just one but two children with CF, where did you feel you were before God on that one? Well, by the time Emily was born, I had two young children with diabetes, mm -hmm. type 1, which is a full-time 24-7 job, you know, monitoring them. But I, I, I sort of felt that we were doing a pretty good job and it was manageable. It was coping. I, I thought it was coping okay. 
But I would say the Lord had really prepared me a year before. You know, I just, I had felt a, a, a terrible unsettledness in my walk with him. I had felt, you know, I'd been praying that the Lord would draw me closer to him, bring me nearer to him. I, I had felt a terrible sense of apathy, mm-hmm. I think would be the word. So, so all throughout that pregnancy, it was a strange time for me spiritually. And looking back now, I, or even upon diagnosis, I, I, it, it just, it just hit me. The Lord has been preparing me for this for over a year. You know, just, just what I had been processing. So it's almost as if all that processing had happened before. I'd come to that conclusion that you know, I had really settled on Matthew five, and um, the Lord promising, they that um, hunger and thirst after righteousness. That that's a prayer that He would answer, that He could answer. That they will be filled. And that had been a theme the whole, through that whole year before. And um, when Emily was diagnosed, then I, I sort of thought, this is the Lord's answer. This is the Lord answering my prayer to be filled. In some ways, it was easy to accept then. In other ways, it was very difficult. Um, I would swing back and forth between feeling a sense of joy over, over the Lord dealing with me and with our family, and then a sense of terror for my child Mm -hmm. and grief um everybody wants to bring in a healthy child into the world but when you bring in a child that has a disease and their life will be filled with struggle and possibly pain thankfully now with new medication and that things are looking very good but when she was born i had no idea this medication would be available within a decade you know and 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 you just feel such a heavy burden of responsibility this is i brought this child into the world and, and, and death and the reality of eternity weighs very heavy on you. But, but I think that's a good thing. You know, I think we have worked through a lot of stuff early on in our lives because of all this. And our children have had to work through, you know, a lot of this stuff, a lot of sort of daily struggle. And, you know, I, I, I would say that my big, my big prayer at the time was, how am I going to raise these children and keep yeah. them healthy and happy? I wanted a happy home. I wanted to be a happy mom. And, you know, there's just some days where you just wake up and you think, how on earth am I going to be happy today with all of these therapies and things to look out for and things to worry about? You know, so that was my big prayer. And the Lord just helped. The Lord just provided. And, you know, I had a husband to talk things over with constantly. You know, we were always discussing and processing things. And, you know, it took it took a while. There's no instant fix you know, you just, you just have to get through that process and the Lord, the Lord helps. And I feel my life is much richer and fuller for it. You know, my spiritual walk with God, my life with the children, you, you live, you live more day to day because you don't have any promise of what's going to come tomorrow. Uh, you don't take things for granted. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I just, yeah, I'm just grateful for all the time we have together. Wow, that's fantastic. And uh, I did say right at the very beginning that it's amazing how we start on one subject and we'll end up somewhere somewhere else. I did not know we'd be spending (laughs) this amount of time. And I I thank you for your honesty and and the remaining time, if that's all right. The first thing is I've got pretty pretty certain understanding here that uh, one of the last questions we always have is about who your Christian hero is. And I'm hoping that uh, the Krupp Project might come into that with regard to the, the gentleman concerned. If not, then <laughs> please could you use that answer? Because in the remaining time, 
for those that are listening today and there'd be people going do you know what that's what i'm struggling with at the moment so from a from a man's perspective and from a, a female's perspective what advice would you give to people who are really struggling with this whole concept of ill children what would you say for Solara? I would encourage them to leave their children with the Lord. On one of my trips while we were living in Victoria, I bought a book, I think it's by Palmer, The Death in the Home. Was it Palmer? Reverend Palmer? Yeah, I think so. I wish I knew the name of the, the pastor, but I think it was Palmer. Um, he buried, I think, seven of his children. And in that book, which was originally titled Death in the Home, it's a re, it's new, it's been republished. This was in eighteen hundreds. It's been republished with a different title, mm. but he describes the deathbed scene of every child, wow. and he walked through it. And he was dependent on the Lord. It's a huge, because spiritual warfare. Paul said, "We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? It's a spirit world we're wrestling. It's the devil and the, and the demons. It's the original sin and within us." But spiritual warfare always manifests itself in something, right? I'm, I'm reading through Joshua at the minute, right? Mm -hmm. Warfare there was the walls of Jericho, right? Or the, the city of Ai. Whatever it was, it manifested itself in a tangible, physical form. And so it does so with us. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of that warfare then is your sick child. How are you going to process that? How are you going to deal with it? How are you going to leave that child with the Lord? Yeah. And I think it's I think it's in that book Death in the Home where he says he he had to leave his children in the hands of God, who is a far better and an infinitely better father than he was, and so I have to trust them to the Lord. They're, he gave them; they're his children. He has given them to us. It's the heritage of the Lord. Now we have been given to care for, and to to guide and direct and to bring them up in the fear of God. But they're his. Um, and so I had to, to learn to do that and to trust the Lord with with that, that nothing, you know, we, we think we're in control of anything in life. I mentioned earlier the church. You know, I pastored a church. I thought, this is my church. This is my baby. This is, yeah, I have to yeah, develop yeah. this. I have to grow this. I don't carry that burden anymore. It's the Lord's church. And the Lord builds it as he has for 2,000 years without me. <laughs> right. I've only come along in the last 50 years and he still doesn't need me he uses me mercifully yeah. yeah, but he doesn't need me and I have to leave those things and I would encourage parents with, with sick children to trust the Lord and to, to get a vision of what the Lord can do if we trust him in that situation Yeah, and the, and the joy and this is, this is what Paul says in Philippians that he can give us a peace in the midst of that, that surpasses our understanding. That's huge. That's what Adam had. This is why I would like to speak to Adam. Yeah. Right? Because he had, he had just sinned. He had brought the whole of, of, of creation, not just himself, the whole of creation into a state of sin and misery. And, he, and he's processing that, this mental torture as the Lord is pursuing him through the garden and Adam's processing this. And then after the Lord came and says to Satan, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to crush your head and destroy. That was a symbol of absolute defeat. Adam, that's in verse 15 of the chapter. In verse 16, the Lord, in verse 16, the Lord deals with the woman. Her whole physiological makeup is going to be uh, affected. In 17 and 18 and 19, the Lord deals with Adam. 
he's his work is going to be working the sweat of his brow and so forth and then Adam in an act of faith trusts what the Lord had said in verse 15 it was like I believe the gospel of Genesis 3 15 and it was as though nothing else mattered what's going to happen to my wife Eve and the, and the body and the pain and childbirth and what I'm going to do in life and struggle through life that doesn't matter as long as the the Lord is going to get the glory and defeat the, the, the serpent yes. crush the head of the serpent I'm going to hold on to that life Yes. and the Lord himself said I can give you in the midst of death I can give you life more abundant and in the midst of that a peace that passes understanding it's phenomenal and that's what Adam enjoyed and that's why I love Genesis chapter 3 and the, and the whole Adam situation yeah, yeah. it's huge it's huge but the thing is is that you said two words there for me stick out and the first word is trust you have to trust and the second word you used was if I think it's some people go, oh yeah, I could do that, I could do it. But actually, in reality, it's like two hours later, having left the church, it's like, oh, I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of struggling here, I'm, I'm struggling. Grace, what does it mean to you? Yeah, well, there's kind of two paradigms almost. There's, there's where we trust. Yes, we trust. And we believe that the Lord's in control. But then how does that play out? tomorrow morning when I wake up and I have yeah. to slog through the day again and it's not easy. So how did you, you know, do it? Well, I suppose at the time I looked at it as these are my children. I want to do an excellent job in caring for them. I'm going to throw myself into it 100%. And that gave me a lot of satisfaction. And I felt, you know, I, I felt happy in looking after my family. So if I, if I felt, if, you know, if I felt I was doing a good job, you know, that was fine. But then there were times where we'd hear back from the test results and they'd got an infection. Yeah. And I was crushed because I thought, well, I, I didn't do a good job. I didn't prevent them from this and that. Or maybe I didn't do enough therapy or, or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's just a process where you have to learn. I'm not in control. And you just take one day at a time and, and you just you, you, you pray a lot. There were times when I prayed just every hour to get through the day sometimes especially if I was waiting on test results and I was overly anxious you know maturity comes it's been 10 years now since Emily was born um, and maturity comes and you learn and you learn about the disease and so it has got so much easier especially as they've got older but now I have teenagers who have diabetes and Emily's 10 she'll soon be a teenager she'll be more aware and they have to carry the burden of this disease because it is a burden you know it's easy to say Trust the Lord and be happy. Yeah. I'm not saying that's what Aaron said, but, no, no, not so, but there not are so. these cliches, yeah, yeah. things out there. Well, you just, just get over it. But when it's your life, it's your life. And that's, you want to enjoy your life. Like, I think that was my big prayer back when the kids were small. Is I wanted them to have a happy childhood. I didn't want them to see me moping about worried all the time. So yes, I did have to sometimes hide the tears and sometimes drop everything and go to the park and go for a walk and enjoy nature uh, we lived on Vancouver Island at the time, and we just head to the beach. And I think homeschooling also has played into that. It's it's fit our lifestyle. If 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 one of the kids was having a tough day with blood sugars and didn't feel so good, well, we would have an easier day. Or if I had lost a whole night's sleep, you know, our time was flexible. And Aaron was home as well, which was lovely. So um, you you just had to, you just had to create those those ways to cope, and then. The spiritual aspect, I think just time and maturity and prayer does a lot. 
Um, but then, you know, in terms of, of the kids growing up, it's no longer, it's not going to be so much my burden as their burden. And that in itself is tough as a mother to realize. Um, this doesn't just affect me, you know. Yeah. This is affect, This is that, their life in real time. How do we prepare them? How do we teach them to have a happy, healthy life and yet also face the reality of it? So um, I would say, uh, I think your question is, what would you say to parents with, with ill children? Yeah. I would say prepare them for an eternal mindset. Paul talks about this. Let me just get it here. I was wondering um, what you do with the phone. Uh, this is a verse that just has gripped me in the last few years. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Where's that this, again? I, what verse? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. 17, this, this this verse just gripped me because there's the word weight. You live every day with a weight. There's mm-hmm. no getting away from it. You know, I, I don't believe in pretending that there's nothing wrong, right? And I think the best thing you can do for your kids is help them understand that, yes, this is a problem. And not instead of just, you know, denying it maybe or saying, well, it's, you know, not a big deal. Let's just go and enjoy whatever because sometimes you just have to face the reality that this is tough yeah, yeah. and you, you're not getting away from it that's chronic illness is hard that way because there's no cure you know there's just therapies there's and but the, but the therapy and the prevention is is work in itself yes so it's another layer of burden upon burden yeah. you know so you're dealing with this weight but if we as, as christians we can see this as a weight of glory and it's it's this weight that settles on us that teaches us us of what is to come because I think about eternity a lot more than I ever did you know and I and I want my children to what's the word um, soak up that sort of reality that this is just a very short mm. this world this life is very short in time span and it's very insignificant it doesn't feel insignificant now but when we get to eternity and look back we'll realize it was just an inch on the ruler or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think the Lord can turn that burden into a, a weight of glory as we live this life. And that's where the joy comes. That's what makes all that you've learned so precious. Like, I would not change one thing because everything I've learned, everything I grasp now, I, co- I, I probably couldn't had I not just had to work through all that stuff. Yeah. And yes, like you say, it is a process. It's not, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, and then just passing that on to your children and helping them live, live those ideas every day. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, that is that is the challenge: is taking this little frustration, this this problem, and talking about it, reminding. And I think I think families need time. When you have chronic illness, you need a lot of time to process stuff. It, that will change and that will flow, but I think, I think the joy that we've had as a family over the years is time. That was one of the lovely things in Kenya is we had so much time together. Then Aaron was in secular work when we arrived here, and he was gone out of the house so much. Now he's back in ministry. He can work from home. He's more yeah. flexible, and it's it's just lovely to have that time. And the homeschooling I think has been a benefit. We've had so much time together, and we understand each other's burdens. Yes. You know, and, and we can talk about it. And yeah, I, I think I would say eternity and then taking that time to work through those ideas. Well, I can't thank you guys enough, not just for your hospitality beforehand, but your, 
your openness and your honesty and your answers. And I bet you didn't think we were going to go this far. No. no. Thank you. Thank you. Let me thank you for the opportunity. Well, we haven't quite finished yet. Oh, Because you've got to do your Christian heroes. It's, we always end up by asking our, our guests of the day who their Christian hero is. Someone who's encouraged them, influenced them. And the only two golden rules is, uh, are, not is, um, that they can't be from the Bible and they have to be dead. That way then, you know, we can't be accused a few years' time. Well, I chose such a... And look what happened to him as a result or her. So... Aaron, who are you going to go for, please? Well, I, ha I think I have to go for Ludwig Kopf. <laughs> Thank uh, you. The reason why I'm laughing is because I was hoping you were going to talk about him, and I mentioned at the beginning that we would ask that question, so I'm okay. Yeah. Carry on. Who is um, who is he, please? Ludwig Kopf was a German who went out to East Africa uh, with the CMS, the Church Missionary Society, which was an Angli evangelical Anglican mission in the, at the beginning of the 1800s. He opened up East Africa for the gospel. Arrived in Mombasa in 1844, just a few weeks later, his wife died and his infant daughter. They were the first Christian graves in East Africa, oh, wow. there in Mombasa. Hugely stubborn individual and pioneered, was pushing into the interior. Yeah. Up into, he made it, on, he actually made it uh, on one trip up to Kitui where we were and up past to the Tana River. And he almost got killed on the way back. He almost got killed there, actually. The tribe he was with was, were slaughtered, wiped out, and he survived. He mm. ran into the bush and survived. So Ludwig Krupp, he was a linguist. He was a, a traveller, pioneering traveller. He was a missionary, pastor. And two years after David Livingston published his travels, Krupp published his in English. They were already published in German. Mm -hmm. But Livingston had already got to the gate and he was better known. But Krupp yeah. was actually before Livingston in, in East Africa. But it was the travels. You see, people in, in the colonial Britain were reading the travels of these men across the world and they were coming back with this material and reading it and just soaking yeah. it up. And Livingston's just was off the shelves. But um, well. Krupp, Krupp published his a couple of years later and he wasn't well known. Nobody knows about him. I, I go to churches and even missionaries and missionary professors and seminaries and ask, you know, Ludwig Krupp? Have you ever heard of Ludwig Krupp? Never heard of him. There has not been an English an English biography written of Krupp for over 100 years. And when I arrived back from Kenya in 2020, just before lockdown, we were locked down for three months, I wrote a biography. Wow. And wow. published it last year. Can I just say, for those that want to know more, as I found out, it looks as if it says Krapf, K-R-A-P-F. But as I never had a German lesson in my life, <laughs> it's pronounced Krupf. Yes, I'm glad that my German friends were able to <laughs> confirm that it's actually pronounced Krupf. And you, you do a thing called the Krupf Project. For those that want to know more about Mr. Krupf and your Krupf Project, which I've had a look on your website, it is very, very good. What's the, the address, please, for people to find more information at? Krupfproject.com. Dead easy. Dead easy. And Krapf again is K-R-A-P-F. Yeah. Well, those people that can't speak a word of German, it's Krapf with an A. Thank you for that. Thank you. Grace, who is your Christian hero, please? Did you say they have to be dead already? Yes. Oh, dear. You were going to mention me. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Elizabeth Elliot. She was a missionary to uh, the Elka. Tell us more. 
I'm sure you've heard of Jim Elliot. Yes. 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 She was Jim Elliot's wife. So she's written, written a lot of their story and a lot of other books since. You choose her. Mm-hmm. Why? She's an amazing communicator. So therefore her books were good to read. Deep thinker. Writes a lot about suffering. So I've, I've read some of her stuff, a lot of her stuff. And just, ah, uh, she has this earthy sort of tenacious way of saying, you know what? You know, God is in control. God is sovereign. And she had to explore all of that when her husband died, you know, after only 18 months of marriage or something and a little daughter left behind. And then she goes into the jungle with her daughter, lives in the jungle for two years, I think. She just had an amazing, simple faith. And and, and yet she shared that process with us. Yeah. So. And I think you just nailed it. The whole thing today, God is in control. I think sums it up. Mm -hmm. And I can't thank you enough. Aaron Dunlop, Grace Dunlop, thank you so much for your time today. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.